Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Oxbow Partners is happy to support this episode of Following the Rules. Oxbow Partners is a management consultancy specialising in the insurance industry. In 2022, we were again named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. We help our clients, who include insurers, reinsurers, regulators and investors, with everything from growth strategy to operations, technology and M&A, not to mention the impact of the increasingly complex regulatory environment on their businesses, such as the current FCA General Insurance Pricing Fairness Rules, about which you'll find lots of commentary on our website, oxpopartners.com. If you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, please drop us a line. In the meantime, enjoy this podcast. I remain convinced that clearing and whether the London Clearinghouse can retain that global leadership and market share is the litmus test by which we can assess over the coming years whether London has been able to retain its global leadership position. Today's guest outlines the steps UK institutions and their regulators could take now to prevent London from losing its status as a global clearing hub. He details the regulatory changes to equity markets and pension fund rules that UK lawmakers should consider to ensure the city retains its global leadership in financial services post-Brexit. And he explains how a proposed 2017 merger between the London Stock Exchange Group and its German rival Deutsche Börse could have helped London better navigate some of its most complex Brexit issues. These are all subjects he is considerably well-versed in, because Xavier Rollet ran the London Stock Exchange Group as its CEO for nine years until November 2018. Since then, he has held a number of CEO and chairmanship positions across major global financial institutions, including the hedge funds CQS and Shaw Capital. Hi, Xavier. Welcome to Following the Rules. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me on your show. As chief executive of the London Stock Exchange Group during the Brexit vote, you spoke out about the damage you believe Brexit could cause to UK markets. What's your view on how the UK has weathered that change? My perspective comes from having run a company that sits at the heart of financial infrastructure and and probably much larger and more relevant than many people think. When they think of an exchange, they think the trading of equities. Equity markets represent, what, about 5% perhaps of global financial assets. Even though they support the entire construction of capitalism, they're actually small in terms of their notional or nominal value. The London Stock Exchange Group, as a result of many acquisitions, and as the result of having introduced globally relevant innovation, particularly the compression service within the London Clearinghouse, carved itself a leadership position and a very substantial one, particularly in the area of clearing of over-the-counter derivatives. The compression engine is an innovation that the London Stock Exchange Group built with participating banks and members of LCH after the acquisition of LCH by the London Stock Exchange. And what that did is when you clear interest rate swaps, which are notional contracts, getting the benefits of compression, elimination of risks across currencies. So taking contracts that would be matched in terms of their structure, their maturity between, say, on one hand, a euro institution, and on the other hand, a US institution, 
across G20 currencies. So matching these contracts, because they're not securities, you can essentially pair up the risk by offsetting across currencies and not hedge, but eliminate vast amounts. So that's the power of compression engine. There is no other clearinghouse in the world today, none, that offers that. Back in 2017, LCH was compressing, eliminating about $400 trillion worth of interest rate swap risk. And here's the Brexit conundrum, if you want. London was certainly in the last several decades, a global financial center and had established in leadership position in euros, in dollars and Japanese yen and other currencies because it offered global solutions to the world's largest players in the area of financial services. And at the time, from a corporate perspective, and my job was to defend the interest of London and the interest of the London Stock Exchange, Yes, its shareholders, but most importantly, its customers. The purpose was to show how the advantage that London has gained was of a global nature, and that attracted flows from many parts of the world. And if you remove one of these elements, let's say the euro is repatriated to the eurozone, as is currently, and the warnings were at the time, and London could lose the global efficiencies from losing a key element. That's a complex issue. Brexit only happened in practice January 2021, and we've already seen some of the impacts since it happened. But I remain convinced that clearing and whether the London Clearinghouse can retain that global leadership and market share is the litmus test by which we can assess over the coming years whether London has been able to retain its global leadership position or whether it migrates. I've been on public record in saying that for a number of technical reasons, I did not think that any European financial center could capture that enormous clearing engine. Talking here for the interest rate swap engine, of a notional risk, balance sheet if you want, something in excess of a quadrillion dollars. So we're not talking about small numbers. And the ability of London to retain that, of course, is under threat of the European Commission and the European authorities saying that they will no longer extend the mutual recognition, i.e. the equivalency that LCH enjoyed in the Eurozone. And this therefore would force EU headquartered entities both in the asset management and the banking side, to repatriate their euro-denominated OTC derivative clearing activities inside the eurozone. So if eventually LCH is denied an equivalency with the eurozone, the real risk for London is this business will move wholesale. And if it moves, it likely will move to the United States who would therefore be the greatest beneficiary in the area of financial infrastructure of Brexit. Okay, that's really interesting. And obviously, you've been talking about the fact that the UK was the clear market leader in the clearing of euro denominated transactions at the time of the Brexit vote. At that time, there was a daily turnover of then around 927 billion euros carried out in London. And efforts to shift that business to the eurozone have proved a major challenge and long list of complexities arising from this drive to turn the Brexit vote into reality. And as you say, the EU's reaction in the near term was to opt to allow that business to continue as it stands for the time being but that status quo ends in June 2025 and I find it really interesting that you say that you see that effort to shift that business will be a a litmus test in terms of London's ability and and LCH's ability to retain its global leadership in this clearing business because that assumes that it's not a fait accompli that assumes that you see some ability for London to retain that business could you elaborate on that what do you expect to happen when that temporary equivalence comes to an end so that's the correct question 
First of all, in the EU, Brexit is seen as a political decision. And the Europeans have always said, do not expect us to give an economic response to what is entirely, in their view, a political decision. So the notion that forcing the repatriation of euro-denominated clearing inside the eurozone as regards European institutions, even if it's disadvantageous to them, fails in comparison with a political principle of repatriating this, whatever the, the economic consequences. And, and at the time, actually, with my colleagues at the LSE, we computed the disadvantage in terms of net income, bottom line, increased regulatory capital requirements and the like, that this would impose on the big European banks. But that is not sufficient to sway the European desire to give a political response to what is a political challenge. So that's point number one. Point number two, and this is the reason why that equivalency has been extended a few times, is that about 75% of clearing flows pertaining to euro-denominated OTC derivatives originate from outside the eurozone, in fact, outside the EU. So the EU is a minority player in its own currency as regards OTC derivatives. Now, that has severe implications because if the EU terminates the uh, recognition of LCH as an acceptable clearinghouse for EU institutions, that forces those institutions to extract their euro business, bring it back to the eurozone, but of course lose the advantage of massive regulatory capital savings. Now, there's two other economic facts that I rarely read about in the press. If the EU wishes to force the repatriation of these businesses, it indeed needs a transition period because you cannot migrate them from one clearinghouse into another one, whether, by the way, it's cross-border or within the same entity, through what's called innovation, i.e. tearing up the contract and changing the legal terms. You need a physical market transaction. So a bank needs to take essentially ownership of some of the underlying interest rate swap notional value that's, let's say, in LCH, take it onto its own balance sheet, and then sell it, transact it with a Eurozone bank. And that means that for even a limited period of time, you need to have what we call dual margining. Effectively, it's going to have to be margining on the UK side and at the same time, margining on the European side. We're not talking about billions. We're talking about hundreds of trillions. And this vastly exceeds the combined balance sheet, interest rate swaps alone, of most of the world's global banks put together. So we're not talking about an easy tear of the contract, change the clearinghouse, and then move it notionally, we're talking about potentially the world's largest systemic transition that ever was, period. And this is, of course, of a systemic nature that would worry the regulatory authorities in the UK, namely the Bank of England, but also in the EU. So the migration would be very complex. And there really are only three banks in the EU that have the business expertise, potentially the appetites, and the operational capability to do this transaction and the balance sheet. And it's BNP, the Société Générale, and Deutsche Bank. So you can see, if you compare that to the almost 100 global banks that are members of LCH, what are having this massive migration, such as the world has never seen, on the balance sheet of three banks 
is not an option that uh, the regulators can seriously consider, which is why this thing has been extended. So what I think will happen, because the decision was made back in 2016 and 17 by European Treasury that LCH would lose eventually its equivalency and recognition in the EU. Unless that decision is politically reversed, it's not impossible, but at the moment, LCH will indeed likely lose that mutual recognition. But that means that you have to find a recipient, a clearinghouse, that can substitute itself to LCH. Now, LCH, by the way, has a subsidiary in Paris, which I was keen to preserve because it clears the bulk of euro-denominated repos. At the time where I was at the stock exchange, no clearinghouse in the Eurozone, except for LCH Paris, had the regulatory permission to clear for U.S. entities, not even Eurex or Deutsche Börse. They secured that license from the CFTC in 2019. So effectively today, Deutsche Börse could clear Euro-denominated securities, of course, for Euro-based entities, but also for American entities who do the bulk of the business in Euro-denominated OTC derivatives. And I'm, I can't think of any scenario where the EU would denounce mutual recognition of clearinghouses between the U.S. and the EU. So the U.S. becomes most likely the most attractive alternative to LCH London. Now, this could mean two things. LCH moves its global compression engine to the U.S. The U.S. will maintain its existing mutual recognition with the EU. So if you operate as a clearinghouse in the United States regulated by the U.S. regulator, namely the CFTC, you can clear for EU-based entities, you can clear for UK-based entities, and also for other entities around the world that matter. Or another clearinghouse develops a compression engine that, of course, offers euro as well as other global currency compression benefits together with a U.S. dollar. Clearly, the CME who used to clear this, this mammoth business up until 2015, I'm sure would like it back, and I'm sure U.S. regulators see it as an opportunity to get it back. If you're a U.S.-based investment bank and the biggest clearing engine in the world, by far, by any standard, with a massive amount of cash collateral and notional risk moves to the United States, you acquire a natural advantage because most of these large banks' natural collateral, of course, is denominated in U.S. dollars. So that's why I've said that the clearing of OTC derivatives is, in my view, litmus test as to whether London and its cohorts of investment banks and asset managers and infrastructure will retain its global leadership. If it were to lose this compression engine, and the U.S. still remains today the likely recipient of that engine, either that LCH moves to the U.S., because, of course, they can't break up the compression engine. They've got to keep these G20 currencies together or someone else, namely the CME. And then there hasn't been any confirmation, but there were some rumors about a year ago. So the DICE, the Intercontinental Exchange, was considering moving its clearing engine back to the United States. And I assume the UK government would be lobbying against that. So these are the dynamics. I don't want to bore you with more technical details, but my expectation will be that the EU, in the end, unless things change, politically or radically, it would require a complete sea change in the political relationship between the UK and the EU. But unless that happens, the EU will terminate the recognition of LCH, and the banks are not going to wait for that day to happen. They will start looking at alternatives. Can we have a compression engine with the Eurex? Can we rebuild the compression engine with the CME? Now, what is more likely is that if that recognition is lost, because many of these underlying notional contracts have long lives, 10 years, 20 years, 
as much as 50 years in some cases, probably the new business will be required by European Securities and Markets Authority to be transacted with a Eurozone-based clearing entity. You mentioned if the LCH loses that EU business, you'll see a wholesale shift in business to the US. What exactly do you see shifting? Yeah, so the risk is that if you lose one of the elements, a lot of the benefits for Eurozone-based banks disappear completely. It's either 100% or zero. So let's say the BNBs and the Amundis of the world and the Deutsche Banks clear the euro interest rate swaps in Deutsche Börse. And the only amount they have is the 25% share of euro-denominated interest rate swaps and nothing else. No sterling, no Canadian dollar, no compression benefits with other currencies. You can see how quickly their market share is going to disappear because they won't be able to quote as competitively because their clearing costs will be much, much higher. And so if these banks do not want to lose that competitiveness, they will have to find some other solution. And the risk is that another financial center will offer these global compression services to European banks, which is why I believe that if business moves to the United States, i.e. euro-denominated entities moving their euro business out of London into the U.S., then the risk, of course, is for that global compression engine to move out lock, stock, and barrel, mm-hmm. the whole thing, not yeah. 10 or 20%. Mm-hmm. The only bit that probably would remain in the U.K. would be the sterling. But as we know, this is a small underlying notional market. There is one solution. It is technically possible for the Bank of England and ESMA to sign a memorandum of understanding on the same basis as they already have with the CFTC, which provides a joint governance framework between the Bank of England and the CFTC. Same with ESMA. In the current political environment, it's unlikely, unless somehow the political fracture between the EU and the UK can somehow be rebuilt or the relationship be improved at the political level. Okay. And as you've summarized, once you are connected into a clearinghouse and you have all that technology wired into that clearinghouse, it's very difficult to move. And as you say, EU clearinghouses do not have the infrastructure in place to grab that business currently. Very few EU banks have the capital buffers in place to handle that business. So even though there's EU political will for that business to shift, in reality, you don't expect it to shift to the block. Given the complexities surrounding shifting this Euro-denominated business from the UK to the Eurozone, is there a scenario in which we could expect a further extension to that temporary equivalence beyond June 2025? Or could we expect a transition period? You mentioned that that would be needed. What would that look like? And you also mentioned you could foresee a scenario in which European regulators would allow change very gradually, depending on the tenure of the various transactions involved. So we could be looking at a 10-year horizon. Is that correct? All these things could happen. You're asking the right question, because we are where we are. There's no point reinventing the past. So in the EU, they cannot mandate US UK or Japanese banks to clear inside the Eurozone, but they can mandate Eurozone headquartered banks and asset management companies to clear their OTC derivatives inside the Eurozone. But if that happens, that means that those institutions are going to be at a very, very substantial financial and commercial disadvantage. I computed at the time with some colleagues, the individual impact on the bottom line of major European banks I mentioned could be upwards of half a billion euros per annum. So it's not insubstantial, particularly in these days of difficulties for financial services. And that, to me, is the reason why the EU has not been able to force that migration. They've given a clear signal that they will not allow going beyond 2025. So they're giving three years to European headquartered financial services, banks, asset managers, to essentially extract their euro-denominated business, no longer clear through LCH. 
That's only 25% of the total euro market. That three years is in the mind of European regulators the transition period. So they're telling European institutions, you have three years to make whatever necessary operational changes to start clearing by 2025 your euro-denominated risk inside the eurozone. So going forward, a European bank has to ask itself the question, do I push through all my euro-denominated interest rate swaps into Eurex, where I'm going to get virtually no compression benefits because all they do is euros, or am I going to clear in another jurisdiction where compression benefits could be offered? So the CME effectively has three years to create a global compression engine and take the business from LCH. Or LCH can move its clearing engine to the U.S. And or Deutsche Börse in the next three years. In fact, it has to be sooner than that because banks are not going to wait the week before the mutual recognition expires. Or somehow Eurex manages to create a global compression engine, which is not impossible. Is it impossible that it could be extended? No, of course it's not impossible. But by saying it's not going to be renewed, it puts immediate pressure on all participants to start thinking and putting in place an alternative, a hedge, in case it is indeed not renewed. If that migration of global expertise does happen, the impact can be extremely severe. It's very binary. So can that change? I think it would depend on the evolution of the political relationship between London, Berlin, and Paris, which has always been a complicated love triangle, if you allow me that image. The events of the last few months would indicate otherwise, but in politics, anything is possible. I very much believe that doing a deal with Eurex and Deutsche Börse would provide us a natural protection against the eventuality of Brexit with a very strong partner inside the Eurozone as far as the businesses of the LSE were concerned. Because remember, the top co was going to be in the UK not in Frankfurt. So we would have kept overall control. We would have had the greatest number of directors at the time. What we were missing is a big futures engine, and we did not have a global collateral management engine. There's really only two in the world that can settle transaction cleared in the world's major clearinghouses is Euroclear, which has a partnership in China and a partnership in the US with DTCC, and is Clearstream. Clearstream was, of course, part of Deutsche Börse. So had we managed to secure that merger, we would have the two missing bits, namely a global futures engine and a global collateral management engine. Imagine the power having the biggest clearing engine across the G20, having all these currencies offering collateral management services to clients to make the collateral management more efficient. So it was a Obviously, a political decision that intervened when we were close to secure that transaction, which I can only assume and guess involved European and UK governments at the time where Brexit was in the pipe. But this would have been, for our customers and our shareholders, possibly one of the trump cards in making a powerful argument on both sides to retain that mutual equivalency. But that's the past. I do think, subject to perhaps an appeased political relationship between the UK and the EU, a memorandum of understanding would still be possible between the Bank of England and ESMA to seek to create a framework by which, at some point from a regulatory standpoint, the EU might be comfortable with its business staying in London. And have you spoken about that as a solution to the Bank of England or to ESMA? Well, I still have private conversation here and there, but these two entities of late, I've certainly not been asked my views, nor have I sought to engage with them. 
Okay. And you mentioned that you see LCH's ability to retain that EU business as a litmus test for its ability to retain its global leadership. A focus of UK lawmakers currently is on a package of reforms going through UK Parliament, which seeks to ensure that the city retains its competitiveness post-Brexit. And that package of reforms is known as the Financial Services and Markets Bill. I wonder if you have a view on some of the proposals suggested in there. And also if there are any mistakes that you think UK lawmakers should specifically avoid in its efforts to ensure that the city retains its competitiveness post-Brexit? Yes, and I think this is the right question and can only give you a personal opinion. I think we're facing here an aporia, which essentially is a mathematical contradiction. Is if you do one thing, something else is going to happen. There's no doubt that by most metrics, London until recently was the number one global financial center. And it was number one because it was global, not because it was EU or US or because the UK economy was the biggest in the world. It's a big economy, but it's not big enough to support that global leadership. That global leadership position was because the regulatory framework, the expertise, and the solutions offered to global clients were better there than anywhere else. And that's what we must seek to protect. But if you look, for example, at the primary engine of economic growth, of productivity, which is always something people love to talk about, about being a deficiency in Europe and the UK, we never talk about the real solution, but the primary engine of high productivity and the primary engine of growth and wealth creation undoubtedly is the ability for a country's economy to use deep, savvy, liquid equity markets. So it's the ability of equity markets to scale up successful entrepreneurs into global companies. And if you look at equity markets, which are taxed to death in the UK and the EU, and frankly, regulated to death structurally. And regulation and fiscal policies have completely throttled equity markets in the UK and Europe. The UK is not even the biggest equity market in Europe. The United States, which has a population 25% smaller than the UK and Europe, but an economy 25% bigger, has equity markets that are 10 times more liquid than the UK and EU. They trade $700 billion a day. So if you look at a market that is already very liquid and that may soon have the regulatory backdrop to attract the OTC derivative clearing globally for corporate issuers, IPOs, treasuries, investment management companies, banks who need to cut their costs, particularly regulatory capital, through the reduction of risk and access to superior liquidity, I believe that if the current trend continues in the UK and Europe, the US market will be even more irresistible because of the pool of capital, the capital solution, and the balance sheet efficiencies that they will offer in an environment which is fragmented. And that is one area where I would suggest is an urgent wholesale rethinking of the regulatory framework and the fiscal framework, which today hobbles UK and European equity markets to really free the power of equity markets to create that growth, to help this really ambitious, talented entrepreneurial position in the UK. There's a lot of advantages, but when these companies grow to a certain extent, they're past a billion, we need to connect them with deep liquid markets. And if you do not have a regulatory and a fiscal framework that at least doesn't handicap you massively versus the US markets, it's never going to happen. So that's an opportunity for the UK, in my view, to recharge the equity engine so as to enable those entrepreneurs to create 100 billion pound companies, which we haven't seen in decades. And we have the entrepreneurs, we have the good science, we have the universities, and we have the risk capital. 
the thing we're missing, besides expertise sometimes in the asset management industry, is a deep liquid pool of equity capital. We no longer have that. So I would say that is an opportunity for the UK to make itself far more competitive because that, in my opinion, is a lost cause for the EU because policymakers don't want it. But the problem with that competitive reset versus the EU is that it increases the risk of EU intransigence in terms of any sort of mutual recognition, any sort of mutual access to financial services in particular, because for the EU to all of a sudden have a competitive regulatory area right at its border, which would, of course, draw business and maintain its presence and offer a more competitive regulatory framework, would, I think, make it even more certain that things like LCH, mutual recognition, would not be extended again. So I think it's a quandary. Because regulatory competition, that is possibly the area that the EU is the most sensitive to because it has big markets. There is an opportunity today to maintain competitiveness in some areas by moving away from some of the legislation like Solvency too, that has been not only deeply adverse to the growth of technology stocks, the growth of the economy, improvements in productivity, but are actually the self-imposed reason, in my view, why we had this pension crisis. Because we forced pension funds to basically move their investments away from equities into not just bonds, government bonds. Now, of course, if anything impacts the quality and the perception of the value in the government bond market, then it kills the pension fund. So it's not just a regulatory issue, it's of course, fiscal and political issue. Yes, the UK has that opportunity. Will they take it? to a point where it becomes a meaningful competitive advantage. Because London has started to lose significant market share. I'm talking about rebuilding. And just when you're in a position where some key elements of your market portfolio are declining, so that requires significant departure from the EU regulatory framework. That, to me, would be the lowest hanging fruit, the biggest possible reset if we could attract entrepreneurs who want to scale up their businesses and have the Teslas and the Googles and the SpaceX and, and all the others in Europe and in the UK, which we haven't had for decades. Talking about productivity, but we don't have any 500 billion pounds or 500 billion euro companies in Europe. And the ones that get closer to that level are yesterday's businesses. It's oil and gas. It's traditional manufacturing in some cases, traditional telecom companies that have lost a lot of their values. But in the industries of the future, we do not have these giants. And when you add the value creation that these giants provide, that's what gives the U.S. economy its 4 or 5% annual organic growth rate. I don't think it's going to happen, but I think it would be transformational to the U.K. economy. On the regulatory side, at the very minimum, I would remove the provision in things like solvency too, that force pension fund to stay away from equity. The best thing that a pension fund today can do is buy equities because it is the best performing long-term asset class. Solvency too essentially forces pension funds to short the real economy by eschewing equities. And guess what? Forces them to buy government bonds, which is very practical when you're issuing a lot of it, you're in debt and your economy is no longer competitive. You've referenced the aftermath of the UK's efforts to create a business-friendly environment post-Brexit. The former Prime Minister and the former Chancellor heavily contributed to a market upheaval that triggered a full-scale liquidation event for pension funds. You've suggested some reforms that you think would have improved that situation. What lessons should be taken from that in relation to pension fund regulation and how do you think pension funds could avoid a similar event from reoccurring? 
Well, the obligation made to pension funds to buy long-dated government debt on the basis that it makes them safer to satisfy the obligation. Let's remember, this was imposed by governments in the UK and EU on the pension sector, and by the way, also on the insurance sector, which is a long-term provider of capital to the real economy. Think of the progress that could be made in the UK, rebuilding modern city centers, fixing them up with fiber optics, modern technology, improving transportation. If the major UK insurance companies, the legal and generals, could move away some of the investments from government debt and put them in equity investment in the real UK economy. That is why the U.S. economy is growing so much faster than us. Don't look anywhere else. It's the freedom that markets have to pick their choices in terms of the technology winners and make long-term equity investment. They are the one who return the best returns to pensioners. So we now have a global situation, which I think is aggravated by the fact that some countries, China, for example, are aging. Their populations are starting to shrink. We are likely to see a reversal in, in the current decline. But what was China going to do? Was China going to free up its equity markets, privatize them to free up and unleash the amazing entrepreneurial potential of cities like Shenzhen, Guangzhou, or Shanghai? doesn't look like this is the direction that China is taking. That leaves really the U.S. today as the only country underwriting that model. So is there an opportunity for the U.K. to look at specific provisions within EU regulations that have been wholesale implemented in the EU legal framework to recalibrate the funding of its economy away from debt? By the way, when you fund an economy on debt, what do you worry about the most when you lend money? It's about losing it. It's therefore bankruptcy, it's therefore bankruptcy protection. A debt-funded economy focuses on the downside. An equity-funded economy only provides dividend payments when companies do well. And by the way, equity investors accept the company may go bust. What are they getting in exchange? Theoretically, unlimited upside. You can make an investment and multiply your investment if you make the right one by 10,000-fold. It's not mathematically impossible in equity markets. This is why the U.S. economy recovers so much faster. And I think that's the opportunity the U.K. has to live. Ultimately, it's a policymaker's decision. My expectation is, given the global geopolitical trouble and stress under which economies are under, it's quite unlikely that anything but the shortest priorities in terms of satisfying the electorate's legitimate desire, of course, to pay less for their gas and oil and their food. I think these issues we've been talking, they're quite technical issues, not issues that resonate with the average voter and why should they? So I don't think financial services are going to figure very high in reality. Okay, that's really interesting. And thank you very much for giving me so much of your time today. That's been a very thought-provoking conversation. All right, Lucy. Thanks for having me on the show. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.